Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is podcast, an informative comedy podcast for comedians of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thank you so much for listening. If you are on iTunes or SoundCloud, please subscribe and leave a review. And also, follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at There It Is Pod. Follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and head over to the website, thereitispod.com. You heard it in the song. You can read up on blogs, and you can find out how you can support the podcast, which would be very much appreciated. I have a great episode for you today, but before we get into that, I wanted to talk about Gene Wilder. Very sad news to hear about his passing, but I'm so thankful that I was inspired by him. How many magical moments did he create on the big screen for you throughout your entire life? That's one of the things I'm so awed by in his talent is that versatility he had. He could do Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory and grip our hearts and minds as little kids, and then you can watch that movie as an adult and still be gripped. He is so phenomenal. I love the magic that he brought to the screen. And he also did it in movies like Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein and all these movies, all these movies, please go check those out. They are great. And you can learn so much from watching him. It's such a good activity to watch great actors and great work because you will learn a ton as a performer. So I, I implore you, go watch some good stuff. Start with Gene Wilder. Today's guest is someone you can also learn a great deal from. I talked to the amazing, legendary Sharna Halpern. She is the founder and director of the I.O. Theater in Chicago, and she co-created The Herald, which created long-form improv. She is such a luminary in the comedy world. She had so much to do with talent like Adam McKay, Tina Fey, Chris Farley, Amy Poehler, if you love them and they were on SNL, they probably came through I.O. and were mentored by Sharna. She gives so much great information in this. I love talking to her. She's a bastion of knowledge and wisdom. I was very thankful that she sat with me. Without further ado, here's my chat with Sharna Halpern. I am teaching a 101 class for the first time. I'm teaching a, a, a class. I was wondering, what do you always suggest to people who are starting out in improv? Uh, well, the first thing I suggest or, or explain is um, that we're not really worrying about being funny, that we're worrying about just bringing our real selves to the stage, and we're learning about listening and building on each other's ideas. And what we're really basically doing is um, a high-level form of collaboration. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that when you do it right, it's very, very funny. So it kind of puts people at relief to know that they don't have to worry about being funny, that the work comes from listening to each other's ideas, connecting each other's ideas, and um, justifying each other's ideas. And that's when it gets to be fun. So Mm -hmm. when they realize that they're going to be taking care of each other and making everything work and 
taking what would be normally a mistake and weaving it back into the pattern of the work, um, they kind of relax a little bit knowing that they don't have to worry about being funny. They just have to be as intelligent as they are and pay attention to each other and work together. It's a lot of fun. Right. And you talk about, you you just mentioned there about uh, supporting the other player, making them look good. Everybody, even people who aren't in improv, have heard yes and. Mm -hmm. And I have, of course, heard a lot of talk about making your fellow players look good, your, your fellow scene partners look good. But what I haven't really heard is a great explanation of that. What advice would you offer to improvisers on how to make their scene partners look good? Well, it's basically just uh, following the rules of improvisation, which are, you know, like we said, saying, saying yes to each other's ideas uh, rather than saying no. That that right away makes them look good. You know, if, if you say, hey, mom, how you doing? And I say, I'm not your mom. You look like an idiot. <laughs> so just the act of treating each other's ideas with respect is making each other look good. The idea of treating each other as intelligent people. You know, my partner, the Del Close, used to say, treat each other as if we were geniuses, poets, and artists, and we have a better chance of becoming that on stage. So if we are all respecting each other's ideas and supporting each other's ideas and taking them somewhere, you are going to be all making each other look good. It's the old do unto others as you would have them do unto you type thing, so that you're braver on stage. You, mm-hmm. You're uh, willing to take risks because you know your fellow player is with you and he's going to you know, help you to make it happen, and you will do the same for him. So it's the old two heads are better than one, you know? Right, and it it sounds like it has a lot to do with respecting the other person. And there was there's a team here or a group of females who do an improv show here at the theater that I'm in, and they call it Femprov. And it's one of the most exciting shows to see. And I was I was telling them that, and they said, one of them said, I think the reason it's it comes across that way is because we celebrate each other, and I think that's huge. I mean taking the time to really celebrate what this other person is doing uh, is really extending that yes and that support of what somebody brings to the stage. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's um, you want to go on stage with someone who wants to do something incredible with you, make something wonderful happen, you know, so that's, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, and if, you're, if you're not going to respect the other person's ideas, it's like, you know, it's like breaking the rules. It's like playing ping pong. You know, I'm going to try to volley with you. We're going to have some fun together. I don't want to just change the rules and hit it across the room just to frustrate you. You know, we we want to have a good time. I might hit it a little bit out of your reach, but the idea is to really kind of keep this thing going and make something cool happen. Right. I think that that will help a lot in, in keeping the spark in improv as well. I think I see a lot of beginner improvisers who are so excited and they have the spark but some seasoned players, they can lose that spark. How can a seasoned player keep that spark of a new player? Well, I mean, I, I think that something's wrong if they lose the spark. I mean, I've got people here who've been performing for like 15 years, so I don't, I don't know how they're losing the spark. I don't know why they would lose the spark. It's always fun. It's always exciting. Uh, they may feel in a rut, perhaps. Maybe they're not taking chances. Maybe they're not taking risks. I, I don't know. There's a lot of reasons. I hope you can hear me because I'm sitting outside and the crickets are so loud all of a sudden. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I can hear you fine. I barely hear crickets. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear it. There's... It's faint in the background, but it adds a nice little, uh, okay. adds right. something nice to the podcast. 
I would say as a just a person in the world, not just someone in improv who's teaching or coaching, I would say a lot of people in general don't seem to accept notes particularly well. It seems to me that when someone is being straightforward, people take it as being rude or they take a person's honest assessment as something other than the useful guidance that it is. When I took your workshop, I found you to be straightforward and honest, and I loved it. I thought it was perfect. You had the right touch. It wasn't mean-spirited, and I don't, I don't recall anyone taking it the wrong way. But some people do have a tough time getting notes. What can coaches do to be as straightforward and honest as you are, but still encourage people? Well, you know, for me, when I teach, I figured, you know, they're paying me for this. This is, this is my <laughs> job. My job is to fix things. My job is to tell you what's, what's happening, what's going wrong, you know, and, how, and to make it work. So I think that uh, coaches need to really be paying attention to make sure that they can. I think that a lot of coaches think that um, leading a group means sitting there and taking notes and then at the end telling you what you did wrong and what would have been better. I think a, a teacher or a director should be stopping something when it goes off track, fixing it and getting it back on track so that they can succeed. And that's a hard skill. That's a hard, you really have to know what you're doing. You really have to know when to stop a scene and when not to stop a scene. Sometimes coaches aren't as experienced as a teacher. I think also you can let the people know that um, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. If it doesn't apply to you, don't try to justify it to me. Don't try to explain why you did what you did. Just, just listen and hear it. And, you know, maybe later on it will make sense to you. People who don't take notes well are... I, you know, I don't know. I don't know why somebody would, you know, again, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm well respected. Most people listen to my notes, so it's, it's hard for <laughs> right. me to say why somebody wouldn't take a note. But, yeah, I think that I do recall some people, like, being defensive. And, and they don't have to be. Just tell them you don't have to be defensive. Here's my opinion. Here's what I saw. Here's what I think. And just, you know, take it with a grain of salt. If you don't like it, let it go. It does seem that for a coach or a teacher they have to have the knowledge that comes with experience if they want to be able to really guide people well. And for the student, there just has to be that understanding of, well, this person is here to help me. They're not trying to hurt me. Right. Exactly. And someone as a coach has to remember that, too. We're not, try, we're not there to insult anyone. You know, we're not trying to, mm-hmm. there to hurt anyone. You're just trying to help. Right. I realize so much of coaching is managing different personalities. How does someone develop that ability to administer to different personalities on a team so that they achieve the common goal? I mean, you're, you're, of course, you're trying to point everyone on the team in the same direction, but you have to do it in different ways to reach each individual person. How do you do that? Oh, you know, everybody's different. I always just work with them as a group. You know, I don't, I don't sit and arrange my class uh, according to personalities. I think right. that it's like you said before, we celebrate the differences and everyone's got to use their abilities to achieve a goal. And so I just really focus on the group. Um, I don't really focus on individual personalities or issues or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody's always different. And I think that it just, uh, it works. It, it's better that way. <laughs> right. Certainly. One of the things I struggle with personally in coaching is trying to get us to where we need to be so we can have successful shows. I 
I'm just struggling with trying to figure out how to reach everybody for the same thing. Well, I think that they have to come prepared, you know. I mean, if you're saying that somebody's coming from work and they're tired, so that's that's their responsibility. It's their responsibility to make sure they're, they're there and ready to go. It's their responsibility to respect the group, to say, I'm here on time and I'm not 20 minutes late because I was just busy today. I mean, I think everyone just has to be responsible. You just have to get there and become part of the group and do whatever needs to be done, no matter who you are. Right. So, I mean, I've never led a group and saying, well, we're going to do things differently because this person's higher, this person's really high energy, this person's not as smart as this person. I mean, I, I, they just all expect to have to do, you know, if there's eight people, they all have to do one-eighth of the work, and they all have to be responsible to do everything. They all have to be responsible to do the same things. So if they're not responsible to each other, if they're not showing up on time, if they're not as well-read or not as excited about it, then maybe they're just not right for the group. Maybe, you know, some people love this stuff and some people don't. Right. What do you suggest someone do when they have a team and it seems that some people aren't being as responsible as they could be and they're not respecting the team as much as they could? Well, I think that it's a team decision. I mean, I, I've, I've seen it happen where people say, okay, let's let's start rehearsal at 7. That gives you time to go home and eat dinner. Let's be on time and then we'll be done by 9 because people have to go to bed early the next day for work, whatever. Um, if people show up an hour late or miss rehearsal after a while, they just say, hey, you know what, don't play with us this week because you didn't see what we worked on, you know, and then when they're not playing a couple weeks in a row because they're missing rehearsals, they just kind of fade away. Right. And then you get somebody replacing that happens. It happens all the time. Not everybody's right for this. Not everybody can do it. Very true. Yeah, I mean, the people, when we have team rehearsals, everyone has to come. And mm-hmm. everyone has to be there on time. Because if you're not there on time, then you're going to have... Uh, problems among the team because people are going to say, hey, we were sitting here for an hour waiting for you. Uh, they're they're kind of, it's like a big screw you. It's like, I'm more important than you. My time is more valuable than yours. And then you're just going to have, excuse me, you're going to have dissension among the team. Right. You know, respect for each other on stage also leads to respect for each other off stage. And that mm-hmm. has to happen. You know, it, one thing leads to another and back and forth and back and forth. We really make better people. We take care of each other off stage as well, and we respect each other off stage as well, and we say yes to each other off stage as well. And, um, you know, we're saving our corner of the world that way. But if people aren't playing by the same rules, there's, there's bound to be trouble, you know. People, you know, it's like Susan Messing always says, you have to have good table manners or people don't want to play with you, you know. That's very true, and, and the respect on stage leading to respect off stage is very profound because I have found that if I don't respect someone on stage, I tend to not respect them off stage and vice versa. And that's not great. More importantly, if you take care of each other on stage, you're going to form bonds that will be there when you are off stage. I mean, Mm -hmm. so you shouldn't not respect someone on stage. (laughs) You should always respect everyone that you're on stage with. And um, that will make everyone take care of each other off stage. And if there is somebody who isn't doing that, then you usually don't, people don't want to play with them. It, it kind of works themselves out. You know, Absolutely. It usually does. Absolutely. I mean, I've had people over the years that are brilliant, brilliant, funny people, hysterical people, but they aren't nice. And they would, while they could possibly walk onto a scene and help it and save it, they won't because they don't want to be involved in a scene that's not doing well. Or they will make a face from the back line of like, oh, God, like they will actually be judging their fellow player on stage. 
But when they're on stage, they were some of the funniest, smartest people I've ever seen. But they're no longer with I.O. because nobody wants to play with them. Exactly. He wasn't nice. And you have to be nice or nobody's going to want to play with you. I had that conversation with the stand-up earlier about how being nice will get you more opportunities. People aren't going to ask you to be on their show if they're gonna if they're gonna have to spend a couple of hours with you, uh, a couple of nights, and you're not a nice person. Well, you know that's why so many people at I.O. get work on TV because um, the people who are working on TV, the people that work for Conan, the people who work for Colbert, um, they are all I.O. trained. I mean, Seth Meyers is from I.O. and when he hired his cast, he took writers from I.O. and right. um, and that's because. Uh, and the same thing for the corner writers, because they want to work with people who treat them the way they've been treated at I.O. Um, mm-hmm. I remember Kevin Dorff called me once when he was writing for Conan, and um, he said that I would be so proud of what happened to them today. And I said, well, what happened? He said, well, we wrote this bit for Conan, and um, he wasn't really thrilled about it, and he asked us to come up with something else. So we went to that little stage door, and in about five minutes, we had something else, and it was brilliant. And he said, my God, how did you do this so quickly? And they said, we're an I.O. team. We were fishing. <laughs> and what they meant by that was, like, if, if Brian Stack, who's now writes for Colbert, if Brian had an inkling of an idea, then Kevin Dorff would say, well, you know, Stack is brilliant, so if he thinks they're funny, I'm going to add to that and make it work. And then uh, Brian McCann would say, well, Stack and Dorff are brilliant, so if they think that's funny, I'm going to add to it and make it work. Well, when you have five brilliant, funny people doing that in just five minutes, you get something brilliant. And nobody's out there saying, no, I want Conan to see my idea. I don't like that. You know, there's no time for that. And they don't want to work with people like that. So that's what the I.O. training does. That's why even Saturday Night Live, I mean, all these people, that's why Lauren Michaels comes to I.O. because they want the I.O. training. You get so much more done when everyone, again, going back to the old two heads are better than one, what do you see what like eight or ten can do, <laughs> you know? I, I literally said that to my 101 class on Monday. This mm-hmm. past Monday, I said the same thing, that if two heads are better than one, well, eight heads are going to be even better than two. That's right. That's right. And you have to all just have the idea, let's make this work. How can we do that? You know, that's, there's something about a group of improvisers that makes incredible things happen. You know, it's like they even say that if you're on a street and there's like 50 people around and you have a heart attack or something happens to you and you need medical assistance, chances are nothing will happen because there's 50 people and everyone, it's a division of responsibility. No one does anything, you know. But if they're improvisers, everyone's going to do something. Everyone's going to jump on something. They all work together. They're they're more active. They take active choices. Mm-hmm. I, I think improvisers are just great people. They take risks. They work together. They do things. They get things done. They make brilliant things happen. And it's, they're fun to hang out with. I agree. I think another thing that I struggle with as a as a coach and a teacher is getting everyone excited and ready for a show. I, I try, but uh, I don't feel like I do it as well as I would like to. Obviously, warm-ups make a big deal with that, but what are some things I can say to a team to hype them up before a show? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that you need to hype them up before a show. I mean... A lot of people think that you have to be on stage huffing and puffing and screaming and jumping up and down, and I don't know that that's true. I think that it's it's better just to be calm and be in your mind. I think a good warm-up where you're physically getting in tune with each other is great, but you don't have to be sweating and huffing and puffing and be, yay, yay, I'm excited. I mean, you get excited when you get on stage. You get that, you channel that energy. I, I can't imagine someone doesn't get excited 
or nervous even before a show. So there's that. It's it's an excitement or nervous energy, but I, I like to call it excitement. But I think what's more important is, you know, like with TJ and Dave. I, I'm sure you've seen TJ and Dave. They're two amazing them. performers. They don't. Uh, they're sitting there very calmly in the back room, and they, you know, they'll stretch and do a thing. But they walk on stage and they go, "Trust us, this is all made up." They're not running on the stage and jumping and screaming and going, "Ooh, clap!" <laughs> I hate when people do that. I hate when people go, hey, give us some, hey, let's all clap. Hey, come on, man, we'll clap. It's like, why should we clap? You haven't done anything yet. <laughs> you know? don't, don't beg us to clap. Just get on stage and do something worthy. So I don't know if you're just putting your own ideas in your in their head that they're not excited. I, I can't imagine that Maybe, somebody's yeah. coming to a show going, uh, I don't want to do this show. I just can't imagine. That's you know, true. I definitely don't want to give the impression that uh, anyone on, on a team I've coached was not excited, but... I do feel like, oh, I should rally them. And then I, I try to say something or I don't say anything because I don't think I have anything worthy to say. Maybe I'm just in my own head too much. Yeah, I would just say, um, what are our goals tonight? I'm going to connect. I'm going. To, let's worry about a, a common thread. What's our, find our thesis statement tonight. What's this going to be about? Um, not what it's, I'm not saying tell me what it's going to be about, but I mean figure out together on stage through your opening what this is going to be about. Mm -hmm. um, work on connections. Work on things uh, coming back, you know. I think that's more important than go out and have fun because you will have fun if you do a really good show. And mm -hmm. just go up there and, and, and goof around and jump around and have fun is not our goal. Our goal is to create something smart, uh, something that connects, something uh, that has patterns that will return, that, that says something on various levels, some level work, something intelligent. And so that's what I would do is I would say, um, what have you read today? Maybe check in with each other. What have you done today? What have you read today? What have you seen on TV and the news today? What, what, what are stories that you've heard today that are particularly important to you? Have them check in mentally or something like that just to connect with each other. Right. You know, and just say, you know, we a lot of my teams will hug each other before they go on and go, I got your back, I got your back, I got your back, pat each other, and that's it, you know. But I think uh, that's all, just have them connect mentally. I think that's great. Yeah. What are some of your favorite improv-related traditions pre- and post-show? You know, I don't know if we have any traditions. They'll, they'll usually warm up. They'll do some kind of a group game, bring very close to each other some kind of a mental agility exercise together. And uh, like I said, the old I got your back thing and they, they go on stage, they will usually just sit and talk in the green room for a while about things that are going on or are important to them. You know, They'll even just do bits and fool around. That's all. Afterwards, the, the tradition is usually just to sit and talk about the show and laugh about what happened, what didn't happen, what, what somebody meant to happen, you know, and just kind of compliment each other on that. Oh, that was just such a great character that you did. That was such a great song that you did. I love when you brought that guy back and connected. I love that walk-on that you did with that character. You know, they tell each other what they loved about the piece, and I think that's really important. It's, it's, it's still bringing the love to the stage. Our, our, our after-show talks are usually very positive and, and nice. They aren't, oh, that was terrible. Oh, you were horrible. What did you do? I mean, it's not, uh, it's all nice. It's all, um, but our, you know, our people are pretty good by now, too. So, or they laugh at each other. They'll laugh. They'll go, that was so awful. That was so funny. I didn't know what to do. And they just laugh. You know, no one gets mad at each other. It, it happened. It's a show. It's over. Onward to the next one, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's transition a little bit here. There, 
a ton of things that you have contributed to the improv world, uh, not the least of which is the Herald. How uh-huh. do you feel about the Herald being used around the country, good and bad? Oh, well, I'm thrilled about it. I mean, it's because of the book I wrote, Truth and Comedy, um, and I travel around teaching. I went to China. I travel all over the place, and we have our summer intensive where people come from all over the world. We just had mm-hmm. 150 people from everywhere, from Bulgaria, from Korea, from Estonia, to, from Australia. I mean, every part of the world there were people from. And then, you know, they learn, they read, they stay for five weeks, some longer, and then they go back and they bring it to their country, and then sometimes I'll go teach it to kind of help make it better. Um, there's another book I wrote called Art Committee that has a DVD so people can learn it. But, I mean, that's what I wanted. I, you know, when Dell and I first came up with long-form improvisation, people were calling me, and they were hearing about it. You know, and they were like, how do you do it? And I was sitting on the phone for hours trying to explain, and I thought, you know, damn it, I'm just going to write a book. But I'm, I'm thrilled. I mean, we changed the face of improvisational comedy. I mean, before I came along with Dell, there was nothing but short games and you know, if you weren't one of the six people on stage at Second City, that was it. You know, and improv was just a tool to create Second City shows. And right. and, and Dell and I felt it's an art form, something else, you know, something much more important can happen. So I'm thrilled about it. I, I can't believe that I, I had something that was so underground. You know, we were lucky if we had eight people in the audience at one time. We were lucky if we had more people off stage than we had on stage. <laughs> and um, And now it's just such a, it's just like, the thing that everyone wants to do and it's it's unbelievable it's it is. unbelievable it's it's i cannot believe it it's just so exciting and it's, i'm very happy about it that's fantastic you yeah, s- and now harold is so much more than just harold there's so much you know people learned that right. we can take away the training wheels and anything that you do it's about scenes that return in different spans of time and connect and you know, weave together to be that of a story. So anything's a hero now. There's so many different forms. Right. And, and, and you know, long form is about, you know, listening and remembering and recycling. So, so you don't have... So you don't have a love for the original form of the Herald, uh, such a such a bias to that that you don't like what it's happened now. You're excited that it's grown into something oh, I'm, else. I'm the, I was the first one to do it. I was. I mean, we we still teach the training wheels Herald, the three scenes in the game and all that because you have to learn it first. You have to understand it, and right. then you start to get the concept of okay. So now, if there are four scenes. It's not going to be a big idea, or sometimes the scenes, the game can return and become a scene and weave into the thing. So then it becomes the part where it's like we don't even know how it's going to end. You know, now you're listening and remembering and recycling. You follow it. It doesn't lead you when you really get good. Um, right. I mean, it leads you. You don't lead it. Is what exactly, I'm trying to yeah. say. So um, I was the one who said, "Let's take away the bones." Now you've gotten so good. Let's just take away the structure. And I remember my students looking at me like, "What? <laughs> what? Take away the structure?" And uh, it's like, "Yeah, you don't. You don't need that now." You know. So we still teach it, but then later on, when they get really good, they can leave it. So no, that was you know, it, it can't stay the same forever. That was right. kind of boring. We're, we're better than that now. I mean, people, you know, people have gotten better at improv and the idea of scenes connecting and weaving together so we can create all kinds of things. And we've created all kinds of forms. We have the deconstruction and uh, Cat's mm-hmm. Cradle is all about transformation and scenes returning. There mm-hmm. can be six or seven scenes that keep coming back and again and again and right. again. And the Armando as well, yeah. The Armando, yeah, that's it's like a montage of scenes that keep connecting and coming back based on uh, monologues. So there's all kinds of stuff that, that are happening now. 
you started IO in the early 80s. It's an amazing theater. Amazing improv groups and duos are coming from your theater, like Improvised Shakespeare and TJ and Dave, among yep. many others. What are you doing as a director? What's in the water there? <laughs> what is happening at I.O.? Or what are you doing as a, as a director of I.O. for it to breed such great talent and shows? Well, I think it's because the people in Chicago really take the time to get good. It's not like, like in L.A. I have a theater in L.A. too, iOS, But there, mm-hmm. people sign up because the manager says, you know, the casting directors are just looking at people from I.O. You better go take a class. So they're doing it to get it on their resume. But the people in Chicago... They're coming to learn, and they're going through the program, and they see people like T.J. and Dave, and they see people like Improvise Shakespeare and World News Tonight, and they, they're like, oh, my God, that's the bar? That's where I have to go? That's how good i got to be? So they take the time to bake. You know? So like I said before about how, many time, how long people stay here, they'll do shows and they'll perform, and I've got people that have been here for six years. I've got people here for seven years. I've got people, uh, Shakespeare's here for Gosh, it's over 10 years. World News Tonight is here for 15 years. Um, But these shows are so tight and so amazing and so sharp because these people got really, really good. And they're also doing other things. They're doing commercials. They're they're getting other work. But um, they all come back and play. It's like Beer Shark Mice. Look at that. That's a group that plays at iOS. It's Heckner from Anchorman and Mm -hmm. Neil Flynn. Yeah, it's like all these. And they're amazing. But this is what they love more than anything in the world. So... When they can do it, they'll play on Saturday nights, and you know, and they're great because you know they don't bowl. This is what they do. This is who they are, and they're great at it. But they're great at it because they've been doing it since the nineties, right? So, so most people really want to be good at this, you know. So they stay with it, and they stay. Well, let's say, put, let's put it this way: most people love it, and when you love it, you rise to the top, and you get ready. Just keep doing it because you just love it so much. So of course you become great. Mm-hmm. So that's Certainly. what's happening. They just take the time here to really get good. People come from all over. I mean, this is like mecca, you know, for comedy. <laughs> Certainly, yeah. The theater director of the company I'm in did the summer intensive uh, a year or two ago, and uh, he said it's, it was a great experience. I'd love to do it. I just didn't have the money to do it this year, but uh, it's something that I I love. I O. I feel like that's kind of at my um, core. Yeah. I am so, I feel most inspired, I, and I love UCB, this is definitely no knock on any other theater, but sure. I I feel more uh, of a kinship with I.O. Well, well, don't forget UCB came from I.O. You know exactly. I mean? the, the original four UCB was Amy and Matt and Ian and Matt. Right, so, and there's a, you know. a team called Upright Citizens Brigade that was... Wasn't Horatio and Adam McKay in that originally? Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. And they were yeah. I.O. members at the time. Well, oh, yeah. Well, Adam Adam is my best buddy. He's from I.O. He lived with me when he was broke and he couldn't afford to stay here anymore. His parents were going to send him home. And I said, no, you stay at my house. You stay with me. You're not leaving. You're going to do great things someday. And, you know, he thanked me on the Oscars. You know, when yes, he, he did. And uh, so, I know. thank you. <laughs> I thank you because uh, I love his work. You. And, you know, you yeah, have done yeah. a tremendous amount for so many different people that I admire. So it's, I feel like I owe the most to uh, you and Lauren Michaels because I feel like everyone that I love are people who came through through you and Lauren. Well, thank you. And I take care of Lauren, too, so <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah. Thank you for Cecily Strong. He sent me flowers the other day. He sent me flowers saying thank you for always taking care of me because I do. I give him this amazing talent. He loves the I.O. training. He really does. He well, everyone has heard the story about Cecily Strong mm-hmm. originally not wanting to audition and you encouraging her to. And 
aside from the fact that I love her and I'm so glad that you encouraged her to, how amazing is it for the director, this big director of a big company, taking the time to tell someone, hey, no, you really need to do this. You're good. And, and taking that time to, to mentor and encourage somebody. There are a lot of people in your position or people who are not as successful as you who would not have taken the time to do that. But because you care about people, you did that. And that made a much bigger impact than what most people yeah, would Yeah, and it was lucky, too, because I just happened, I just finished my last night of auditions, because I'll do like three months of auditions before Lauren comes, because I have to see hundreds of people, and then I have to narrow it down to the top 15. And Cecily was on my group, the Deltones. It's a, a group that does musical improv. Mm -hmm. They do musicals with scenes and songs and choreography, and she was one of the group, and she's very funny and very smart. And mm -hmm. Yeah, she was, she was managing my box office. I happened to walk by, and I was like, Cecily, why did you audition? And she said, well, I have some stuff, but it's not long enough. I don't think I'm ready yet. And I said, I got to see it, you know, because she was. I know how strong she is. And I made her come up and show me. I said, no, this is a good audition. Let's fix this. Let's fix that. But this is good. This is great. And uh, she was scared. She, she, she wanted to. It's just that she was afraid if she wasn't ready that he would never look at her again. You know, I said, you know what? I think it's a good audition. Let's do it. And she was scared, but she did it and got hired. It, there are so many stories like that were like, last second john lutz too you know john he, he oh was gosh he's so rock and and he also writes for seth now he too when he was um there was one night where i told lauren i'm going to do some improv and some written stuff and so he said okay and and lutz was with me for years and you know i just sometimes get so overwhelmed with so much to do that i just forgot about him i just didn't think about him but what, I, he's fantastic i just didn't invite him to play and the cast was backstage the lights were ready the lights just went down i mean we were ready to start the show and he came up to me he goes charna please can i play i think i'm so ready and i was like john oh, of course baby oh my god i forgot you go 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 and he ran backstage just as the lights went on and got out on stage and he got hired that night oh that's fantastic i love <laughs> I mean, that story just, yeah it's just like and yet, you know your life turns on a dime here you know it really does lutz is one of my favorites oh he's my favorite too he's so great i love everything i've seen him do as someone running a theater, what mistakes have you made that you suggest other theater directors to avoid? Well, I don't know if they were mistakes or all learning process. I think right. um, the one thing, and, and it isn't easy to do, but it took me a long time to figure out how to really succeed, which was I kept moving around into other people's bars and other people's restaurants and um it was just really hard to get audiences, and then the bar owner would throw you out because they can make more money with a band, and uh, right. you know, then the theater owner would go under for some reason. So uh, I was I moved to like fourteen different places, you know, until I realized this is nuts. I've got to find my own space, and and I was scared because I would make at the time I'd make maybe fifty dollars a week because you have to give the money to the people that you're renting the the space from, mm -hmm. and. Uh, so I found a place on Clark Street that was going to be like 3000 a month. This was in the 80s, or nine, excuse me, 95. And I remember, and I, and I took it, and I remember thinking, God, 3000 a month, how am I, I have panic attacks. How am I going to do that? I don't make that kind of money. But as soon as I, you know, hung up that sign and opened the door, suddenly there was a line down the block because it's like, now you're a theater. Now you're real. You're not, you know, sitting in Luigi's restaurant. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> you are really your own thing now. And that made a big difference. That made a really big difference. I think the one thing I did right was I realized that even if I didn't have a lot of money, my 
people were my army, and you're really strong with a lot of really good people around you who love the work and love the place. Right. We're willing to help with all their expertise. I've had people that were would design things, you know, for me, posters, brochures. I've had people who were really good on computer work when I wasn't. And, uh, people who would say, Sharna, you can't take the money at the door because you know everyone and you're so nice, you let everybody in. So it's kind of like give, disperse <laughs> some of the responsibility to people, let people help you, let people think that it's their theater. I think that's the thing I did right that Second City never did. At Second City, everyone feels it's, it's Andrews. You know, um, I owe everyone thinks it's theirs. Oh. And uh, everyone, it, that's why when I opened the place in L.A., it was be, only because all my best people were out there. Like Neil Flynn was out there, Adam was out there, all these mm-hmm. guys, Keckner, everyone was out there. And they called me and they said, Sharna, we're like all separated. We're auditioning. We're not getting work. We're lonely. We're not having fun. Open a place here. Give us a place to play, a place to teach. You know, we're all here. We'll do it. Just get us a place. And it just seemed like a no-brainer. And I did. I opened the place and they all took care of it. And it was successful instantly. They were performing, they were teaching, you know, they were having fun, and it was just like, it's because they feel like it's their theater. Right. You know, they feel that, that and that's why they came back for my 25th anniversary. All the stars came back, because it's their theater. And they wanted to, you know, pass down the torch to the other kids. Like, look, this is how we care about this place. I mean, Mike Myers flew in from Scotland. Everybody came. The only one who couldn't come was uh, Tina, because she was pregnant. And she couldn't fly. She was already, like, in her ninth month. Oh, wow. And so she did this video, um, this really funny video. She was working for Saturday Night Live at the time. And so she did this funny video about um, that I always a cult. And um, <laughs> she doesn't even know how she got this baby. You know, she walked into the theater as a young, you know, single woman and then had to say yes, and the next thing she knows she's pregnant. And, you know, she just made up this whole hilarious story. I mean, it was just hysterical. But everyone else was there. I had like 60 stars, you know, Sudeikis, Amy Poehler, Rachel Dredge, you know, everyone, everyone, you know, Seth. I somehow uh, missed that Jason Sudeikis came through I.O. Oh, sure. I, he's another one that I love. If they were on SNL, I probably love them, and it sounds uh-huh. like if they were on Conan or SNL and I love them, then they were probably someone who came through I.O. Oh, absolutely. Well, what happened was Conan hired Andy Richter. Oh, and gosh, Andy, yeah. And then Andy Richter said, well, hey, I got some buddies if you want writers and people who can make the show funny. So, you know, Andy Richter was an I.O. guy. Whenever I would get out, thrown out of mm. all those clubs I was telling you about, you know, Andy Richter had a truck. And he'd always call me and go, well, I got the set. Where are we going next? <laughs> <laughs> he always had the truck in the set. This poor guy, every, every time it happened, I got the set. Where are we going and uh, Andy, to this day, tells everyone that the only reason he wasn't thrown off a team is because he had a truck to put the set in. <laughs> Although that wasn't true. He was very funny. Very it sounds, he much, is very much funny. funny. you even see on TV. He's so funny. He is very, very funny. And he he's, has a really big heart, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's a, uh, Most people do from I.O. You know, they're all I've really good I've noticed that. Uh-huh. I have noticed that. All How- good people. I want to ask another question about your theater space. When you got the new theater space... How did you decide on the construction? What sort of things were you looking for to make the most of that new space? Well, I was very lucky. I found a place that was 40,000 square feet, and, and that's kind of a funny story, too. At first, you know, I'm an improv theater, so first I was looking for something similar to what I used to have, which was two theaters and two little bars in each theater. And I wanted to buy something, so I was tired of being thrown out of places, because now I was being thrown out of the Clark Street place, too. I'd been there for 15 years, but the guy was selling the building, so I thought, that's it, I'm buying something. 
And so to buy even a small place and build out was going to cost me $4 million. Mm. Um, and this is what the architects would go with me looking at places, and then you, there'd be you know a couple million to buy it. And so I thought, well, Jesus, that seems ungodly. So how am I going to pay back $4 million? So I thought, well, then you know what? If it's going to be that much money, I might as well even borrow more. <laughs> it's like it's like going to Vegas and the chips don't feel like money anymore. So I thought, well, then, and then I found this other place that was 40,000 square feet where I could have an outdoor beer garden and four theaters. There was room for so many things I could do that I could never do before. A kitchen. I mean, things I just couldn't do. So I thought, you know what, then I might as well borrow $7 million and go really big and make it this amazing place. It's going to be a destination place that's like a place like no other. And, uh, because, you know, what the hell, I can't pay back $4 million, I can't pay back 7 What's the difference? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I uh, I bought that building and built it out. And, again, there was room downstairs for, like, two 200-seat theaters and upstairs for two 100-seat theaters. So I figured that could, that could be where we do the experimental stuff. And downstairs could be TJ and Dave, World News, and Shakespeare that we know even 200 seats isn't going to be enough. And mm-hmm. then we have a big, beautiful bar, so I knew that that was important. Right. And then if I'm going to have like you know 600 people in a room in a building, I gotta have this. I gotta have food. And so uh, my niece is a chef, and, a, and so we opened the kitchen for her. And then we have event spaces. And I thought um, I would need event spaces because then you could do more corporate stuff. And now we could also serve food. And I made like I said the outdoor beer garden. And um, I just figured of all the different aspects, bar is important. Classrooms had to have lots of classrooms so that the school could increase. Because I had to now triple or quadruple my business in this building just to, you know, stay afloat. Um, so I made sure I had lots of classrooms, and then I had made sure I had a lot of corporate space, which is really smart because now I have corporations coming. We have one, I have PepsiCo coming mm-hmm. in a couple weeks, and they're having a breakfast for 200 people, a sit-down breakfast. Then they go to workshops, and I have plenty of room for all the workshops. And then they go have lunch. And Stacy makes lunch, sit down lunch, and then they go back to workshops, and then they're seeing a show. So it's like a forty thousand dollar day. Wow! That's... So and I'm doing a lot of that. I have two for PepsiCo. I just had a big one for Boeing. So that's become a big thing. And then a lot of people, sometimes Stacy will grill for people out in the beer garden for some of the companies because it's a gorgeous beer garden. So we get we get corporate stuff I could never do before, and right. now they don't just call and say we want a workshop. Well, they used to say, we want a workshop, and we're going to have it at a hotel. You can come there. And now I say, well, why do it at a hotel? We can do it here. And they're happy. They, they love the choices. We're not as expensive as a hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're in real theaters. So instead of some hall in a hotel, you know, so it really feels like a professional experience. So things are happening that were never happening before. Now they call and they go, we have a workshop for 100 people. We want lunch. We want this. We want appetizers afterwards. We have drinks so we can network. And it's just, it's just incredible. Sounds like it's about having vision. Yeah, I have a vision of all the things I need. I I know I need a bar. I know I need classroom space. I know I need corporate space. And um, this this building afforded all those opportunities. Something that came to me through the discussions that we've had about different people that I admire that have come through I.O. All these people, uh, Adam McKay, Tina Fey, I want to be good, like they're good. They inspire me to be really good. And it seems like the X factor that makes them so good has a lot to do with their intelligence. I am not as smart as Adam McKay, so is there no hope for me to be good? (laughs) Um, 
Well, I think, you know, it's naturally to continue your education. I mean, Adam mm-hmm. reads everything he can get his hands on. He's a big history buff. He's a big um, economy buff. Mm-hmm. Tina's also smart in a different way, you know, and she reads a lot, too. So I think you can read a lot and continue your education. I think the most important thing about Adam McKay, for example, is that he has something to say. And yes. he will find a way to say it, whether it be the big short or, um, you know, something he'll do live at my theater. Um, so that was always important to him is have a point of view about something figure out what you want to see changed and, you know, try to find a way to do it. So I, I, I'm sure there is still hope for you. Um, <laughs> but I, I will be honest and tell you that the ones who succeed are the ones with the most intelligence. That's why T.J. Baber is so good. That's why Shakespeare is so good. That's why World News is so good. It's because they're really smart people. They're very, they, they understand what's going on topically. They're political. They're, they have motivation. They want change. And, you know, the smarter you are, the better you are. And I tell that to my students right away, too. In 101, I always say, continue your education, read the paper, read books, learn everything that you can, because now you have an excuse to use it, because someone might, you know, initiate a narration on mythology. Well, know your mythology, know your history, you know, because if somebody starts narrating some kind of a, a satire on something historical, you need to know what's going on. Right. Because the audience knows when you're lying to them. The audience knows when you're faking it. Yeah, if what you're saying does not match the truth that people know, then there's going to be an issue there as well. Well, you know, it, it's, it's, they're asking you to tell us how, how do we feel about this. Should we be afraid of this? Should we worry? You know, it, it's kind of like we're reminding the audience we share the same world. We have the same fears, we, mm-hmm. you know, and, and let's try to laugh at them. Let's try to figure out how to feel about something. Um, the the my favorite moments about shows that Adam were in are shows where he really said something, where sometimes it wasn't funny, it was just emotional or sad, and uh, it just blew the audience away. So that's just the kind of work he did. He was always mm-hmm. intelligent. I'm not surprised to hear that. I hear a lot of great phrases and philosophies of improv, and I love them. The ones uh, Adele had one about... Uh, improv being the theater of the heart and you had one of either we all sink or we all swim i love these phrases and uh i also talked i asked earlier about how improvisers can make their fellow players look good but phrases like that make me think that it's beyond just the stage it's about our everyday life how can we use improv philosophies and and just things that we learn doing improv to make our friends family and co-workers look good well i think like I said, these skills make you succeed in life and they make make you better people. I mean, I always find myself staying in the moment, following what is happening rather than planning. I mean, my whole life has just been about um, following the moment and saying yes to opportunities. Um, when I'm with family, I listen and I try to be supportive. I try to uh, say yes to their ideas rather than saying no in, in all kinds of situations, other opportunities that open up to me, you know, nothing happens if you say no. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, you tend to be a lot more fun to be with than the negative. I'll even try with my family to get them to listen carefully, to, to point out when they're not listening, to point out that, you know, they're cutting someone off, let somebody finish what they're saying, listen to the whole idea before you respond, you know, little things like that. So I'm always trying to help my family to be better at, um, because that's what happens. Most people, I find when I teach, um, 
they're not listening. They're waiting to speak. Right. So they're missing what's going on. And it's a common problem <laughs> with uh, people. So, you know, if, if you just sure. follow those tenets, you're going to try to get the others. But I wanted to say that it isn't just a phrase. I mean, Dell and I created Theater of the Heart. I mean, that's what we did. That's when we created Longform. This is a theater where you, in order to succeed, you have to cherish each other to succeed on stage. Yes. And that is not a phrase. It's our main philosophy. We are theater of the heart. That's what it is. It's all about taking care of each other and loving each other. Um, and then Seek or Swim, I certainly didn't. And I, I don't, you know, that's so funny because that's a phrase that's been around for God knows how long. I mean, I think I was just teaching one day in North Carolina. I said, come on, either you can't just let this die. No one's going to look good if somebody else doesn't look good. We all sink or we all swim, you know, and the next a couple of years later, I went back to do a festival, and I saw this T-shirt that said "Secret Swim, Sharna Helper, and I was like, well, I, I just said something that anybody, everybody's heard Secret Swim, I think. I, I don't think I made it up. No, maybe I made it up. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you're I you're I... such a bastion of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> you're such a bastion of knowledge that you can't keep track of all the great things you've I said. Can, That's I, I, I thought that was a common thing. No, sink or swim? No? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It just makes sense anyway. But I was surprised to see the T-shirt. I'm like, I said that? They're like, oh, yeah, you said it all the time. We all think we all swim. I'm like, all right. <laughs> <sighs> but it's well, true. You know, you can't be on stage and, you know, half of you look good and half of you look bad. You know, if somebody looks bad, you all look bad. Correct. You know, I mean, Dave Pasquese, I'm sure you probably heard this story, but it's my favorite story. Is, um, after being here at I.O. for many years, he was hired by Second City, as many are, to do a show. And he stayed there for a couple of years. And he won uh, a Jeff Award for Best Ensemble Member. And mm-hmm. so when he went up to accept it, he said, Dell and Sharna always taught me that the only way to look good is to make the other person look good. I guess I didn't do a good enough job. I'll try harder next time. That's sweet. I do love that story. Yeah, I love that. He's so. he sounds like he has a big heart as well and I, I love that's one of the things I really love about T J and Dave, just seeing the shows that really comes through. Well, Dave is a pure disciple of Dell, you know, slow comedy, really listening, building on each other's ideas, you know, just Staying in the moment, not panicking, mm-hmm. taking it nice and slow. And, and and when I say slow comedy, that means that we're listening between the lines. You know, we have to really listen and let what somebody said affect you and think for a second, like, what's what's the best response I can give here? And it could take a good 10 or 15 seconds, and it's always worth waiting for, rather than that knee-jerk response of, i got to be witty, i got to be funny, because mm-hmm. that's not what this works about. We don't need wit. Dell used to say wit is foam on the barrel. You know, you just blow it and it's gone. We we need real thinking. Dell used to say to access your third thought. The first thought's that knee-jerk, jokey response. The second thought will be a little bit better. The third one will be the best. I've heard that before, and sometimes in a scene, I feel like, oh, I have to say something quickly because they're expecting me to say something. Uh, how can someone uh, get rid of those first two thoughts quickly? Is it well, just, you don't oh, have to get to, You know, if you ever watch TJ and Dave, they're very slow in responding. Somebody will say something and he listens and the person waits. And he doesn't keep talking. He waits for his fellow player to give the response. And um, he thinks and he says what he's going to say and it's always worth waiting for. See, the thing is this. You think that there's nothing happening because you're not talking, but there is action and thought. Agreed. Something is happening. You're thinking. We're watching you think. We're watching you come up with the best idea. And then you say it, and it's like, it's bam. It's, it's just so great. It's so much better than something that's just like, you're not thinking, so you're just going to say anything because you think you have to talk. It's good for you to listen 
and be affected. This is this work is all about reacting. Right. So it's very good, for, and that's why TJ and Dave are so wonderful, and I love watching them because TJ will say something to Dave, and Dave will be affected by it. He'll mm-hmm. react, and you, you laugh just at his facial expression. And then yeah. you, you can see him, you see his eyes thinking, you see what he's thinking, and then all of a sudden he'll go, you know, you, you, and then he'll say his line, and it's just hysterical. And it's just because he's waited, he's, he's thinking about what he really wants to say. He's thinking, like, what's the best response here? This is good, this is good, yeah, here's what I really want to say. And, he, and it's beautiful, and it's poetic, because he's taking his time. This is a real thinking man's game. That's why um, smart people tend to come to improvisation. So you're probably not as dumb as you think. I'm not dumb. <laughs> I just, I do yeah, feel... Uh, it is something that smart people like to do. It's it is a, true, It's a yes. real thinking man's game, you know. I do think uh, I'm a very thoughtful person. I, I I sell myself short too often. I need to get out of my head about that. Well, this That'll was a awesome. great talk. At the end of an episode, what I like to do with the guest is to create something together uh, or okay. do some little activity together. I've... But some person, ta- one person taught me how to beatbox. Another, <laughs> another person, uh, Jill Bernard. We came up with a, an idea for a workshop for me. So it can be anything that you would enjoy doing right now. What's something we could do? We could do a pattern game. <laughs> a pattern game, yeah, that would be great. Okay, so um, do you know how to do the pattern game? Basically, we're making uh, themes just by doing one word or or. Uh, thematic sentences and seeing what the piece is about so um we can not even take a suggestion and just see what the theme seems to be but don't go off into infinity keep trying to circle back with the moves so go back or are we trying to circle back to the original word or no, are we we're just trying to we're trying to um let's just play it and you'll figure it out and we know it's not yeah yeah circling back to the original word the original thought we might go off on a tangent okay 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 Let's see. Blue. Red. Color. Sky. Life. Breath. Respiration. Pattern. Circle of life. Water. All the air that we breathe. Sky. Color. Blue. So just in the site, so so what we did was we made a complete circle. Yes. And we have and we came up with themes of 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 life and color mm-hmm. and, and air, water, oxygen. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just like a little pattern. Have you ever played that? It's a fun warm up, by the way. I have you- done that one, and there I've done a few different pattern ones. One was just like what we what we just did, and there's also a clover one, where we do take a suggestion, but we go, we we find different patterns that we can do with that one first suggestion. So we, if we were going to do it again, we would say blue, but instead of the second word being red in the direction we went, we'd go in a completely different direction. Yeah, well, you can, and then you go off on tangents, but they could still all be pulled back, and it still could and be And it all goes life. back, yeah. Because, yeah, you, and that's what's fun about it. it. It is like a clover. You go off on different tangents, and you come back, go off on different... The, the more chaos, the more fun it is to order the information. But well, good, thank but you thank so you. much for being on. This was a really great talk. Good. I hope it was helpful. There it is. Oh, gosh, what a great 
great chat I had with her. I was so thankful to have had her on. I think it just sunk in that I had Sharna Halpern on my podcast. I'm so glad that she came on and shared all that wisdom that she had. I really hope you got as much from that talk as I did. She's super sweet and honest. Go to iomprov.com to find out more about the theaters in Chicago and L.A. Buy Sharna's books, Truth and Comedy, and Art by Committee. They are great reads for improvisers. Truth and Comedy is standard reading for beginners. For more on what we're doing here at There It Is, why don't you go to thereitispod.com. There you can get more episodes and join the discussion in the blogs. If you're already hooked on the podcast, then you know what? You just might have theiritis. You have to know there's no cure for theiritis, but you can treat the symptoms with more There It Is. Support the podcast so we can keep making episodes. May you all have theiritis. There it is, another episode of There It Is. Join us next week on Tuesday's episode. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.